Hello and welcome to episode 52 of the Page One Podcast. I'm Marco. I'm Tarek. Thanks for joining us at the Page One Podcast, where we like to speak to writers of all kinds about their writing process, how they got into the industry, and get as many hints and tips from them as possible. Um, If this is your first episode, welcome. Uh, Please do check out the back catalogue of guests, because we've had some great guests uh, on the podcast now, over 50. So uh, hopefully there is... A few that interest you, so please do check those out. Um, And we've got another great guest this week. We do. We are celebrating our season finale. It is, yes. Season five finale? Yes. It's a very grand title to give (laughs) give what is essentially, we just want a small break before (laughs) before going (laughs) in. So very tired of editing. <laughs> yeah, exactly, exactly. But we thought we'd release this one so that we can distract people from looking at maps on CNN all day. <laughs> <laughs> yes, turn off, turn off the news and tune in to this week's chat with Daniel Abraham, who you may also know by his pen names, M. L. N. Hanover, or James S. A. Corey. One uh, half James of James S. A. Corey. Corey. One yes. half of James S. A. Corey. Sorry. The other half, of course, being Ty Frank, uh, and uh, James S. A. Corey is the author of the Expanse novels, mm-hmm. uh, which I am a big fan of, both the novels and the TV show. Yeah, yeah, they're both great. Um, if you yeah. you can watch the Expanse on Amazon Prime now, is it? Yeah, yeah, I think so. And season five comes out next month. Yeah, time of recording, December fifteenth or sixteenth, I think, from memory. Yeah, yeah. Um, so yeah, it's a really great chat we have, Daniel. He's a really interesting guy, and. Uh, quite deep conversation at times. Yeah, no, it is. It's it's uh, really interesting hearing how he got into writing, and you know what his journey has been. He he's someone that has collaborated a lot with other writers. He's done a lot of not just the Expanse, but uh, other things, other projects as well that he's he's worked with other people, but also on his own as well. He's published a lot of books. He's a screenwriter. He's written comics and yeah, it, it's a really in-depth chat that we have with him. Really good fun, but really interesting as well. And we touch on other, lots of topics, including, you know, the the power and dangers of social media, maybe. You know, what what is it like when someone decides <laughs> a to... A reminder, perhaps. Of, yeah, exactly. Uh, of social media. Yeah, and, how, and I've, actually his attitude is so refreshing. You know, because yeah. I think yeah. what a lot of authors have is a pro. You know, people feel the need to tell an author when they don't like some, yeah. what they've written yeah. for some reason. But his attitude to it is very refreshing, and I, I think it's a it's well worth listening to. And it's good social media advice, not just for authors, but for anyone. To be honest, <laughs> no, it's an ex- it's an excellent chat, and I think uh, everybody will enjoy it. And we'll be back at the end for some more waffle after this short advert for the Page One Notebook. Enjoy. The blank page. To some, it's terrifying, an obstacle to overcome. But we prefer to think of it as an opportunity, a blank canvas to be filled with all of the adventures and characters in our head. So how to overcome that fear? Well, we all know the best advice for a writer is, write. Seriously, get words on the page and more will follow. But what about later, when you start trying to pull those threads of what you've written together? 
What about the character you wrote about way back at the start? Who was she again? What was she carrying? And where did she leave the MacGuffin that she now really needs in the third act? Think about all those top thrillers you like to read. Or that amazing drama you just watched. What did they all have in common? Structure and planning. As aspiring writers ourselves, we've tried many different methods to try and organise all the thoughts about the stories we want to tell. We've been there searching for a piece of scrap paper to note something down, or making a quick note on our phone in between meetings. Or sometimes we'll make a note in whatever notebook we're carrying, or a document on our laptop so we don't forget that great idea. Let's be honest, it can all be a bit messy and it's easy to lose track of everything. And that's when we realise it's not just a story that needs structure and planning, but the way we gather all of our thoughts about it as well. And so we made page one. Page one is more than just another notebook. It's a place to put down all your ideas for your latest project, divided into easy-to-use sections that will help you plan your story, so that when that blank page comes calling, you're ready to answer. And then afterwards, once it's written, we realised you need to plan how to let people read it, so we included a section relating to submissions. Each one is designed for one project, whether you want to write a book, screenplay, a comic or any other kind of story. We truly believe that when you use it, it will help you get to the main event, writing your story. So we hope this helps. We can't wait to read what you come up with. And remember, every story starts with page one. Did you always want to be a writer? Was that always your goal from when you were young? Actually, yeah. Um, the the first kind of experience I had that I remember writing was um, in, I think, fifth grade. Um, I would have been <clears throat> like 10 years old. And we had an assignment to do daily journaling. And I was doing little kind of very short, uh, entirely juvenile um horror stories and reading them to the class and um and, you know I, that was that was fun I, mm-hmm. I they they liked it i liked it um and then we had an assignment in middle school to write a short story that uh i really engaged with and enjoyed so by the time i was in high school i kind of knew that that was what i was going to be trying to do mm-hmm. i didn't know that i'd be trying to do it as a way to pay bills or make money that seemed optimistic but i was dedicated enough to that as something that was important in my life that by the time i was probably a junior or i think i was a junior in in high school when i started doing there was a mentorship program they had at my high school where if you had a particular trade or or career that you were interested in they would try to match you up with somebody who did that and then you could go spend some time and actually get some practical knowledge and understand it more deeply and by the time i was there i was uh, looking for science fiction writers and wound up working for about a year with fred saberhagen the guy who did the book of swords and the berserker series wow. cool cool and but in the, in the meantime you got, i think you got a degree in biology is that right oh yeah i didn't get a i didn't get an english degree i mm-hmm. i was I was uh, impressionable when I was a young man, and I came across a quote by Kurt Vonnegut that was, the English department of a university is where literature disappears up its own asshole. And um, I don't know that that's true. I think that's in, in retrospect, that seems 
uh, harsh, but I was really impressed by it at the time. So I decided not to be an English major because, uh, you know, Kurt Vonnegut. Mm-hmm. Um, and I was not I was not a great student. So uh, it took me eight years to get my undergraduate degree uh, full time there. I was there the whole time. Um, and by I started off as a math major, but then it turned out you had to do all the homework and I didn't like that part. So I did uh, biology because I was talented at it. I was able to go in and listen to the lecture and and kind of understand what they were getting at and see what they were saying. And I didn't actually have to read the textbook yeah. in Bio 101. And I thought that's clearly the right way to go. <laughs> so yeah, biology degree from there. Also, the cute girl was sitting in biology and I wanted to hang out with the cute girl. <laughs> um, so and, uh, You then worked for 10 years in tech support. Is that right? I, I wound up doing almost 10 years in tech support. I did a couple of years um, in retail. I was uh, working at a bookstores. Um, I don't know that I was a great employee, but I, but I was there and uh, that was soul destroying and awful. <laughs> so I switched over to tech support. That's a way to go. Up <laughs> retail. Uh, Angry and, and people whole, phoning you up. And, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and this, this whole time, are you still thinking, you know, are you still writing on the side for pleasure? Are you still mulling st- stuff over in your head? Actually, when I got my first tech support job it was at a local mom and pop internet service provider and uh the people i was working for were people i knew and they were science fiction and fantasy fans they had like as many books as i did and were as well read in the field as i was and uh, at my interview i said look i love you guys i would love to work here this would be a great job for me but I'm applying to Clarion West and I'm going to need six weeks off in a year and a half. And they like knew what Clarion West was Mm -hmm. and thought that would having somebody on staff who had been to Clarion would be one of the Clarions would be uh, a giggle. So yeah, I I got my six weeks off um, a year and a half in advance because they were already clear that this was something I was doing and it was important to me and they supported me. Excellent. Well, that, if you if you have to do a day job, then that sounds like the sort of sort of supportive bosses that that you want, definitely. Yeah the the place that I worked, um, it is a an incredibly difficult job, and there are not better people to do it for than the ones mm-hmm. I was working with. Sounds like it. And am I right in saying that you, in terms of your published work, you started first with sort of shorter stories? Is is that right? Before you moved on to novels. I, yeah, the, the path that I took was actually a kind of a traditional one for the time. I don't know if it's still as much a thing of kind of honing a bunch of craft skills on short stories and making a little bit of a name for yourself in short stories and then kind of using that as leverage to mm-hmm. get into to novels. Um, and I... I I know that there are a lot of different paths in a lot of different ways. That was the one that I took and it worked out pretty well for me there. And that said, I was writing, I was writing novels mm-hmm. um, very early. I was writing novels, you know, in college and uh, while I was doing tech support, it's just, they were bad. So they didn't get published because they were <laughs> bad. Um, and then Eventually, you know, by the time I had sort of gotten short stories uh, under control and gotten a uh, 
a career going that way and a name, a little tiny bit of a name, um, the the novels were considerably less bad. Mm-hmm. So by the when the time came, I was ready. Um, when you wanted to make that jump from the short stories into the novels, you know, how did you go about that? Because I presume you've kind of made a, you've obviously made a bit of a name for yourself in the short story world. You've shown you can write stuff. You can you can put stuff in the kind of publishing sphere. But did you go down that route yourself, or did you go and try and find an agent? Well, the way that it worked for me was um, the short stories led very directly to an agent. I sold short story to Realms of Fantasy, uh, which at the time was being run by Shauna McCarthy, who was also an agent. Um, So Shauna saw the story and said, hey, this is pretty good. Do you by any chance have a novel? And I Hmm. said, yes, yes, I do. And I sent her my novel. And she said, this is uh, very nice. Do you have a novel that is saleable? And I said, no, (laughs) I do not. Um, Why why was that novel not saleable? That novel was contemporary fantasy with a lot of um, kind of obscure Gnostic and religious overtones and... Um, it was, I mean, it was in the, the vein of kind of Jonathan Carroll and Graham Joyce, yeah. and it mm-hmm. was just not a market for it at that moment. Mm-hmm. And it was also, uh, not my best work. Um, and so I talked to Shauna about what she thought was, uh, saleable, what, what kind of pathways made sense in the market. Um, and this is the, the plan was always, um, and has has remained make a list of the things that I think I would like to do mm-hmm. and then talk to folks who understand the business end about which of those uh, to start with. Right. I the my one of my favorite pieces of kind of career advice when it comes to writing is from uh, F. Scott Fitzgerald who said. Uh, Never marry for money. Go where the money is, then marry for love. So I'm um, I'm trying to find the things that I, you know, that I re- I'm not I don't want to chase the market because that never ever ever works. The only the only things I have done cynically chasing the market have been the the ones that failed. Um, the things that I have succeeded in have always been the ones that were not chasing the market. But um. Also, knowing what the market is and knowing of the things that I'm in love with at the moment, which of them is most exciting to editors and agents, mm-hmm. uh, that helps me pick what the next project is. Yeah, no, that makes a lot of sense. And it is, as yeah. you say, it's, a, it's a, a clever way to think about it because definitely if you try and write something that you're not engaged with, but you think that's what people want, it's never going to be your best work. No, it's yeah. and it's it's and and there's always a lag too. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I knew a lot of people who were uh, breaking into urban fantasy right as urban fantasy was beginning to wobble and and collapse. Mm-hmm. Um, and there's there's a year, year and a half, two year lag between finishing a book and seeing it actually come out. Um, in that time what people are buying or what fashions are, it's going to shift. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, and that's, and that's, that's kind of the, uh, the professional gambler end of the being a writer uh, yeah. 
it's not actually my favorite part. It's yeah. I we we spend a lot of time talking about uh, publishing and career management, um, and and not a lot of time or not. I feel like not as much time as we used to talk about the craft of writing. Yeah, yeah. I think it's one of the things that has changed in the time that I've been uh, working. One of the things that's happened within my the span of my career. I mean, I mean, we really saw that, I think, with some things like Twilight and Hunger Games, you know, when there was that real big kind of cultural boom of a product came out, everybody chased that. And I mean, the number of vampire books that were sent to sent agents after Twilight, they're trying to chase that, that gold, but you're, but you're right. You're so far behind it. You're, by the time you send something in, you've, you've, you've missed the, the, the boat by the time that book will ever come out. By the time, yeah, the window will almost always have closed. Yeah, I mean, and you can see that with things like um, I don't remember Name of the Rose and Bertha Echo's mm-hmm. first. No, there is no reason that should have been an international bestseller. There is zero reason yeah. that that should have been what it was. But then it was, and then a bunch of people were trying to think, oh, oh, that's what sells. I'm going to write like Umberto Echo, and they couldn't because mm-hmm. they weren't Umberto Echo. Um, and so you wind up with a bunch of Umberto Echo knockoffs and about two years after the fact that all sank like a stone. Nobody knows them. Yeah. I mean, you see that. You do see, you, I suppose that's true across all sort of creative stuff because you see it in, in, in TV as well. You know, there's, when Lost was a hit, everyone oh, then yeah. wanted to make the next Lost and it's never... The big event yeah, TV show. It, and it, yeah, it's moved on by then sort of a thing. Yeah. So, yeah, it's... It, Chasing that thing is 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 always going to be an impossible thing to do, I suspect. Um, and so when when you you did the short stories and then you you started publishing novels, but you also um, began collaborating. I think quite quite early on with other people as well. Or have you always done that? Is that something that you've always? Yeah, I've, I've I've always I've always enjoyed that part. That was actually when I was at Clarion West back in ninety uh, eight. I co-wrote a story with one of the other uh, students there. I, I wrote um, afterwards, I think, a couple of short stories with, yeah, a couple of short stories with several people. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's just uh, a different spin on the game. It's uh, a different way to approach story and a different way to to kind of see a project through somebody else's eyes and see what they know and what they, what their instincts are. Um, now I've, I've always, I've always, well, I won't say I've, I've always found that very interesting. There's some of the, you know, some collaborations are better than others, mm-hmm. but uh, having that be part of what my creative process is, it's worked out for me really well. Yeah, it, it definitely has. I mean, and, and what is, the, what is your, you know, what is the difference in approach? So if, if you're writing something yourself, how do you go about it? Are you a big um, planner or do you have an idea and just go for that it? That part, that part often is actually weirdly the similar. Right. Okay. Um, whether I'm collaborating or not. Um, the, the way that I've, I'm, I'm, I'm a skeptic of the idea that there are uh, architect gardeners. That's kind of the the thing you always hear. There's people who just go you know, by the seat of their pants, and then there are people yeah. who meticulously plan things out. And they're 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 two very different. They're not really actually different. Those are what what you're doing in either of those is you're thinking your way through the story. 
you're imagining your way through the story. Mm-hmm. And either you're doing that by writing a shitty first draft, which is a yeah. perfectly legitimate way to go, or you're doing it by kind of chewing it over before you write your draft. Mm-hmm. But the, the, those are all, those are all the doodles that you make on the, the page while the work is imagining the story deeply and richly in your head so that when you get to the final draft, you have this experience to report on, mm-hmm. on the page. Um, the way I usually go is I outline what I think the story is, and then I start writing it until the outline is clearly wrong. And then I write another outline based on what the story is. And then I write until that's clearly wrong. And then I just kind of iterate that through. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's all, it's all, um, just a way to help me imagine the scenes and hear the voices and smell the rain wherever I am and, and have the kind of thread of that experience in my head so that when it's time to write the final draft, when it's time to edit it down to the right thing, um, I have that memory I've created that false memory yeah. that I can then report. But is, but is that process sometimes made easier if you've got someone that you're working with? You know, I'm sure we all, when we um, are, are, are have that idea for the story and are thinking it through and are, are outlining it or, or however we approach it, you'll hit bits where you're like, wait, you've sort of written yourself into a corner almost, even if even if it's only in a plan. But if you've got someone else there, does that sometimes help that you can say, wait, hold on, look at this. Have we boxed ourselves in here? Can we come at it from a different angle? The, the thing that's wonderful about collaborating with somebody, um, one person or a team or however, is they don't have your blind spots. Yeah. The things that bore the shit out of me don't bore the shit out of Ty Frank. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, I, I'm not, I don't care about action. I don't care. I don't care about action. I find action dull. Mm -hmm. Ty is really good at it. Ty is really good at choreographing action. He's really good at finding what is interesting and what is revelatory in that moment. Um, I'm much more interested in what happens before and what happens after. Mm -hmm. And so having somebody who can say, yeah, but if you do it this way, then then the fight actually means something and here's what the fight means. It's like, Oh, that, you know, I, I don't, that's not my instinct. Mm -hmm. So having somebody who um, has a different set of instincts and a different set of blind spots such that my weaknesses get filled in the the little holes I have get, get buoyed up. um, It's not just, something that makes the project better. It's something that makes me better. Mm -hmm. Um, It helps me learn as a a writer because I get to see what Ty does really well or what Narain does really well or what any of the the folks on the other side of the the Mm -hmm. desk can do that I can't. And then I learn how to do that. I can think, well, if I, even when I'm no longer in that project, I can say, well, I don't like this, but if I were Thai, what would I do? And I have this little Thai homunculus yeah. in the back of my head, <laughs> and it, he, it can tell me what Thai would do, and then it's better than what I would have done myself. Yeah, the downside, the downside of collaboration is always that you have to give up having it be what it would have been mm-hmm. if you were doing it yourself. Mm-hmm. 
um, the 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 sense of of ownership and of kind of um, obsessive compulsive perfection and egoism that that goes into creating something that is entirely of your own you you gotta let that go or the collaboration can't work mm -hmm. yeah. um and that's turns out that's something i'm good at but the i mean there's there's still moments when it's like yes but i wanted to do it that way okay. yeah well <laughs> all right more show more so on the the screenwriting that right. than the okay. the novel and stuff but uh well, I mean, Ty Frank is obviously the person who you've written the Expanse books and the TV show, which is the big massive event show that everyone watches. And that's season five, I think, is out at the end of this year. And, um, and I, I did want to touch on that, on that, on that kind of collaboration which you guys have, which has been so massive. And, and how did that come about? How did you guys first start working? Am I right in saying it was an RPG you guys had worked on? It first? was. Um, well, the 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 first thing that happened. This is, this is, I'll tell the whole story here. Um, I live in Albuquerque, New Mexico. And one of the things about Albuquerque, New Mexico is we have a university here, University of New Mexico, that has a really, really good architecture program and isn't very expensive. So when Ty's wife um, in her 30s decided that she was going to get her architecture degree, um, they looked around and found the University of New Mexico and they decided to move here. As it happened, we have a friend in common, Emily Ma, who is uh, a writer in her own right, and who was part of a critique group that I was in at the time. And Emily came to the critique group and said, hey, my friends are moving to town, um, and Ty has sold a short story. He is a, he's a writer and would like to come to the critique group. Everybody be nice to him. So we were, Ty came and we were all real nice to him. And, and uh, we got to know each other through that and through uh, kind of the, the local writing community. And he was running a, a role-playing game. And it's one he'd been working on for years. And he was running it mostly in Santa Fe, which is about an hour north of Albuquerque. And he was running it for folks like, uh, you know, George R. R. Martin was in that. Melinda Snodgrass, who worked on uh, Next Generation, was in there. Um, and Ian Tregillis, who's got a, just a bunch of books, a bunch, bunch of the writing community up there were, were in the game. But I had a new baby, and so I couldn't, I couldn't go play games in, in Santa Fe. Mm -hmm. I just couldn't be away from, the, from home for that long. Um, and so Ty very kindly offered to run an instance of the story in Albuquerque for me and my wife and his wife. So just three players um, at his house and we could just go do that. And then the, the kid could come. And when the kid got faunchy, we could put her down. She could sleep. Um, and we played that probably, we didn't play that that many times. We played probably three or four sessions of that. Mm. And he had done all this world building. He had this immense depth of knowledge about this, this universe and kind of the politics of it and the structures of it. And I could ask him anything from, you know, how, what the, the corridors looked like on Sirius mm -hmm. station to uh, what the, the exchange mechanism was for debt going from the belts to earth banks. And he knew, and I was like, he did all the hard part. Let's just write this down. <laughs> you know? Yeah. yeah. 
um, and the and so I said, hey, do you want to do you want to write my my image at the time, my my idea for how this would work would be. Um, he knew this universe. I knew how to write books. I'd already had like four or five books out. Um, I'd just go over to his place. He'd tell me what happened. I write it, and then we'd accrue that until it was a book. And I did the first chapter, the the, the prologue for what became Leviathan Wakes, and I showed it to him. And he said, this is really good, but it's not right. And so he wanted to write, he wanted to try writing the book mm-hmm. too. And he, before this, he had published a short story. That was one. Mm-hmm. That was it. Um, that was his, his, and so I, you know, sure. Um, so the first book we wrote mostly on Wednesdays, cause that was his day off work and we would get together and we would outline the things that happened in one chapter. And then the thing that happened in the chapter after that, he'd write one, I'd write the other. We'd switch. Each of us would read through and edit what the other guy had done. Mm-hmm. Um, and then we put it on the back of the master document and that's like 6,000 words a week. And it doesn't take that long to get a novel that way. Um, and then the plan was we would sell that for, uh, you know, 5,000 bucks to tour and get some pizza and call it a day. <laughs> and it didn't quite work out. <laughs> Unfortunately. Really, really overshot. We really overshot. <laughs> and w- w- when you, when you are writing, a, a story like that, because also your your fantasy books are the same. You know, when you're writing a big epic saga, it may not start out as that in your head, but you know how 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 much of it is like how much of the whole scope of the thing have you got an idea at the start that yeah, and then this could happen, and then that you know it's sort of far away in the distance we might get there one day, or are you just planning on that one book at a time? It it varies depending on the project and but generally, you know, I've I've got I guess four multi book series that I've done at this point. Um in almost all of them I have known what the ending was going in. Right. Okay. So the long price quartet, I knew what the project was, I knew what the structure was, I knew what the ending was when I started book one. And the, the details in between were pretty fuzzy and, and changeable and, you know, changed a lot. But uh, I knew what that was. With the Dagger and the Coin fantasy series, I knew what that was going. And I actually did a lot of work up front, um, not just myself, but with the, the local community. One of the things we do around here is we have things called plot breaks right. where – if you have a project and you're thinking your way through it and you want to kind of have the advantage of that collaborative uh, foment, you, you get some friends together, you buy them dinner. We all sit around and talk about what the project is and what's interesting about it and what chimes off of you and what you don't want to do. And, and it, it helps clarify what the project is in your mind. I did that not just for, the dagger and the coin books, but for epic fantasy as in general, I, mm. before I did the, the, the dagger and coin books, I did something called the the symposium where I got a bunch of people, SM Sterling, Ian Tregillis, Melinda Snodgrass, George R. R. Martin, 
Uh, and we all went over to Melinda's place for a probably a seven or eight hour day and talked about what epic fantasy is and what it's about and what its roots are and what it does well and what it does poorly and and just kind of chewed through what the project of epic fantasy is. Uh, and then with that in mind, then went on to talk about days later about what this particular five book series was. Uh, but I knew going in, it was a five book series. I knew what it was going to be. Um, with The Expanse, we did the first book thinking, yeah, this is fun. This is a one-off. Mm -hmm. um, but when it came time to uh, sell it, it's easier to sell when there's the promise that there might be more if it goes well. So we, we came up with some ideas for what we could do next if we did something next. Uh, and, and they were interested in getting that. But by the time we were working on book two, Leviathan Wakes had already been um, nominated for the Hugo and it was looking like maybe the project had legs. And we talked to our publishers that, Hey, if, if you just want three, we can we can wrap it up in three. We can get to an ending if you want to mm -hmm. do it in three. If you want more than that, you should say so. And they said, oh, yes, let's do more. And so Ty and I, Ty and I, had, while we were working on book two, did uh, kind of a map of what the whole the whole project would be. And there was there were two versions of that. There was one that was 12 books long. And there was one that was nine books long. And we, we looking at the two of them, we kind of decided the one with 12 books had this sort of mushy section in the middle. So we cut that out. And then we went with the nine book version. Um, and you can, if you read the books, you can kind of see where those three vamping, spinning the wheels books would have been. Mm -hmm. um, but we just didn't write them because they were boring. Fair enough. Uh, but we but we knew from the time we were doing the second book what the last scene of the last book was going to be. Awesome. And and I think it's it's fair to say that across both of your fantasy and your sci-fi stuff, you know, I think writing that kind of world is often prone to um, exposition dumps, um, which I think you guys avoid doing. And um I kind of wanted to ask how you, what the, your best method of avoiding that is because I know I, like I read in an interview you said that um, having worked on the Expanse TV show, it kind of gave you a different a different understanding of storytelling and, and how to how to get that information across. And I also wondered if working on the TV show version of the Expanse has changed the way you write books and whether that that changes because obviously the way that you exposition something in a TV show is very different from a book and does all that kind of tie in together and, and change the way that you tell those kind of stories? I, I like to think I have a much bigger toolbox than I had when I started doing the TV show. Um, there are some things you can do in prose, especially with exposition and internal monologue um, that are incredibly powerful and don't translate at all to the screen. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. There are some things that are specific to prose that are, that make prose uh, a, a different and better uh, way to approach some kinds of narrative issues. Um, there are some things that you get for free in filmed entertainment that you cannot recreate in prose. Um, and, and understanding what those are and seeing how they work has been enlightening for me just over and over and over again. Um, but 
that said, I think the the beauty of prose is that it has these strengths and it has this experience that it creates in the reader that you can't get anyplace else. And the tools that support that, um, I think, are things that we really should embrace. I don't. I don't think a good book is a, a TV script written for. Mm-hmm. Uh, the reader. I don't think that a good TV show is a book that gets shoehorned into uh, a form that fits in front of a camera. I think they're different things. Yeah. So I think as a storyteller, I think I'm, I'm in a much better place than I was when I started, but I don't think that it has changed my process with prose. I don't think it's changed what I, what I do with, um, words and chapters and story structure. The thing that has changed, the thing that did happen, isn't specific to screenwriting. It's specific to the people I'm working with. Um, our, our showrunner on The Expanse is a man named Narain Shankar. And, you know, talking about collaboration, everybody everybody recognizes that me and Ty work together and we collaborate, and, and that's true. Mm-hmm. Um but a writer's room is also a collaboration. It's a much larger collaboration. And, you know, Dan Nowak, who's been the writer who's been with us since the beginning, is absolutely a part of the show. Uh, Narain Shankar is the showrunner. Ultimately, we work on his show. Mm-hmm. He does not work on ours. <laughs> yeah. And working with him for the last five years and seeing the attention to detail and the um, dedication to the craft and the way that he is willing to spend hours, you know, with color correction and sound balancing and doing things that are almost subliminal to get the, the show, you know, 1% better, 1% better because of the color correction, 1% better because of the VFX design, 1% better because of, over and over and over and the way that that iteration elevates the whole project it's so easy to just be a little bit lazy mm-hmm. it's so easy to just just you know not really focus you know on you know the rhythm of your words yeah, yeah you know you, you don't have a, anything egregious you're fine but watching the way that he approaches his craft with such thoroughness and such dedication has made me more self-conscious about doing that with my prose. And I think to my benefit, I think seeing his creative work has made my creative work has raised the bar for my creative work. Um, So that's, that's the thing that I think um, working on the show has changed. And sort of linked to the, the, the Terrence point about the exposition stuff, you know, one of the things that, that struck me when I read Leviathan Waits for the first time was, you know, it, it just, it, it doesn't, I've, I've read sci-fi novels before where you get introduced to the character, but then you have this sort of whole background of, of what the universe state is or whatever, you know, it gives you a big detail of it, whereas it just drops you straight into it in Leviathan Waits and, and you go from there and you kind of learn as you go. Um, is that something, is that your approach always? Do you think that's the best approach rather than sort of, yeah, taking well, time I, out to, to describe I, things to people? 
I won't, I won't say that there's a best approach. Okay. I, don't, I don't think there is a single best approach. I think there is a best approach for a project. Mm-hmm. I think each project has the things that it needs from you. Mm-hmm. And, and figuring out what those things are is kind of the job. Mm-hmm. I think there is absolutely a place for vast expository dumps. Um, I think if you go back and read the first four or five pages of a Christmas Carol Dickens, Mm -hmm. that's, that's an info dump. That's the narrator turning to you and just telling you what the background is and how it all works. You don't even meet a character for pages and it's charming Mm -hmm. because the narrator has such an engaging voice and is playing with you and playing games and, and commenting on things. And, you know, there, there are ways to do info dumps that are tremendously successful. Um, There are ways to do it that are wooden and boring, you know, not making it wooden and boring. That's your job. Yeah. Um, With the expanse. I mean, if you look at the expanse, there's actually a fair amount of info dump in there. There are a fair number of passages in there where we turn to you and say, here is Tycho station. Here is its history. Uh, but hopefully we did it in a way that you didn't exactly notice that we were doing that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. Because we were uh, charming about it. That was what we were aiming for. Yeah. Yeah. I think maybe as you say, it's, it's, it's getting the reader to sort of buy into the voice. And if, if, if they're, if they're happy being told the story by that voice, then, yeah. then it then, can go anyway. Then yeah. you <laughs> You can at, you can have pages and pages of exposition, mm-hmm. and if it's fun to read, nobody will count yeah. you down for it. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And that could sound that could sound a craft. That could sound the the conversation about craft mm-hmm. that is, I think, um, the bedrock of all of the the later conversations about publishing and career management and art. I think I think really what we do almost always boils down to um, how do you make the person engaging with your prose enjoy the experience? Yeah. Yeah. I think that's right. And when you, when you have a, a, a big epic story that you're telling with its fantasy or sci-fi, you know, do you, do you map stuff out? Do you have charts? Do you have of the world or the characters is that, or is that all kept in your head or do you have stuff written down that you like a Bible that you go back to? I have a uh, notebook of uh, scribbles and sentence fragments and phrases that are supposed to kind of remind me what I was thinking of. Mm-hmm. Um, and every now and again, a really good sentence, because I should have that in mind when I get there. Um, but um, but I'm not, I don't, I don't really like do, well, I guess I have done some charts. I have done some things where it was like, thinking my way through something if there was some particular issue that seemed like I needed that kind of doodle in order to really internalize it. Yeah. But ultimately I'm trying to internalize it. Mm-hmm. Uh, ultimately what I'm, cause as with, as with film, um, prose is um, one thing at a time across time. Right. It's 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 this image and this dialogue and then this uh, thing that you're imagining. What 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 we're doing when we write prose is we're telling people 
what to imagine and what order to imagine it mm -hmm. in. It's yeah. it's what we're what we're doing is more like um, guided meditation than than anything else, uh, and we're giving those instructions and understanding the flow of what to imagine and what to imagine and what to imagine. If you're asking people to imagine three things at the same time, you're probably not writing good prose. Mm -hmm. um, so having that, that very narrow focus, that, that one frame at a time vision of it, mm -hmm. that's, that's my job. And I've, mm -hmm. and if I understand the world deeply, it's easier for me to, to richly and fully mm -hmm. imagine what it's like to be in that particular plaza at that particular time with those particular people with that particular dragon. Right. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, yeah. And that's, that's the moment that I'm trying to evoke in whoever's reading the, the book. Mm -hmm. And does it, was, does it sometimes, sorry, sorry. No, it, does it sometimes take you a while to find that voice for, the story that you're wanting to tell you know if you've been writing the expanse but then you change to a different story does it do you have to take your time to say right what is this you know what is this story where am i going with it and how how am i going to tell it um yes and no uh it took it and i'm gonna i'm gonna, I'm gonna generalize here uh, it takes a very, very, very long time to find voice and to control voice and to get comfortable with that that part of the craft. And I I did that a whole lot in my twenties and early thirties. I'm I'm fifty now. I'm pretty good at it. <laughs> I, I've had a lot of practice. Yeah. So at this point. <laughs> Uh, picking up a new project and finding whose voice I'm speaking in and how the story wants to be told is much more intuitive and much more internalized and mm -hmm. much more. But that's, but that's because I did like 15, 20 years of work back, back in the day to, to get where I could do that. That's not a thing that, that comes naturally. Mm -hmm. Um, it's something that you can make come naturally if you spend just a lot of time and effort thinking about it. And I'm, I'm kind of there right now with the caveat that I'm still figuring stuff out. I don't, I'm, I'm, I hope I'm not done. Yeah. Um, but I'm better than I used to be. It takes me a lot less time now. Yeah. Fair enough. And when you're writing in, in these worlds uh, of like sci-fi and fantasy, obviously there is, Especially with something like The Expanse, there's, uh, you know, there's a lot of fans um, who all have opinions about things. Um, do you, you know, how do you find that? Do you do you enjoy engaging with the fans? Sometimes these things can go slightly the wrong way as they become too big. <laughs> if I can put it yeah, nicely, yeah, yeah. No, you know, there's there's. Um... There's a joy in talking to people who like your stuff mm -hmm. and there's a necessary distance and kind of a callous that you have to, to have too. I mean, the, the fact of the matter is um, people who read my book and who tell me what it was like for them aren't actually telling me about my book. Yeah, They're telling me about, the performance of my book that they made for themselves 
Uh, and that's not actually my responsibility. I don't have any power over that. So somebody who comes up to me and says, I read your book and it was really fucking boring. I think, well, you're not a very good reader. That's cool. <laughs> that's, okay. that's, that, that's fine. Or I'm not your, your cup of tea. Yeah. You know, I, the way that you imagine things and the way I imagine things don't sync up real well. And it wasn't rewarding for you. Okay. That's cool. Um, but the, the, again, this goes back to kind of the egotism of writing the ego uh, of putting your story out there. And then if you need the praise and we all need the praise a little bit, mm. I mean, I can, but, but if, if you, if you, if you can't get enough of that, you shouldn't ever do this. You should never talk to a fan. You shouldn't get on a, a couldn't get on Reddit. You shouldn't go to Goodreads. Mm -hmm. You shouldn't read your Amazon um, because that if it hurts, uh, it will hurt you. And yeah. if it if it makes you really happy and full of yourself, that will hurt you, too. Um, there's a you have read Annie Lamont and Lamont uh, Bird by Bird. No, no. Brilliant book about the experience of being a writer. And one of the things she talks about uh, is Radio KFKD, which is the left side is the constant uh, criticism and self-doubt. And the right channel is all of this sugary praise about how wonderful you are. And it's called Radio KFKD because if you listen to either channel, you're fucked. <laughs> um, and, and engaging with fans, engaging with feedback of any kind really invites that experience. Yeah. Um, and, it, you know, and and a certain amount of it's really nice. And if you can if you can do that, that's awesome. And if you take it too personally, you ought not. I'm good at not taking it personally. Somebody can tell me that I'm a terrible writer, and I'm fine with that. Um, somebody can tell me I'm a wonderful writer. I'm fine with that too. Uh, it doesn't. It's not really about me at that point. I, I just uh, don't understand people that that feel the need to. You know, to like tag a writer on Twitter and say this is really shit. You know, well, what what's the point in doing that? Apart, well, the, yeah, the, I don't... the the point of Twitter, the point of social media in general, is um, being paid attention to. Mm -hmm. I mean, anybody anybody who puts a tweet out ever for any reason is ultimately saying, "Hey, look at me." Mm -hmm. That's that's the subtext for all of it. And that counts for me too. That counts for anybody. Mm -hmm. um, and to a degree, anybody who writes is participating in that same impulse. You know, why do you have, you know, why, why, why tag somebody and say your work was shit? Well, because you're Dorothy Parker. That was her whole career. That was what she did. She did it in print. She did it in prose. She did it with tremendous style and wit. And so we still remember her, even if we don't remember some of the people she was critiquing. Because yeah. um, she was really good. The guys on Twitter are not that good. The guys on Reddit. <laughs> the guys, the, 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 they're, they're, not, they're not Dorothy Parker. We're going to forget them in a minute. But that sense of egotism and attention monitoring and and uh that's it's the same it's we're, it's it's we're humans that's what we do yeah i suppose they what they think if they if they tag the author directly in it then there's less chance of it going into the void and more chance of it being noticed or drawing more attention to well, it and, it and you're kind of inner... 
and so you're going to be noticed by somebody who matters to you. I mean, yes, one of the things yes. that's really interesting about the asymmetry in writing is that reading a book is a tremendously intimate experience. You're, you're actually, you know, like I said, you're, you're, you're imagining this thing. You're, you have this absolutely internal experience, this unshareable experience. The closest person you have to the person who shares that experience is the author. Mm-hmm. Now the author doesn't know you from Adam. That, that there is, it's an entirely one way relationship. Mm-hmm. Um, but I've had, you know, very meaningful interactions with dead people because I read their books. Mm-hmm. Um, it's very easy when you have spent hundreds of hours um, in somebody's company to think that you have a relationship yeah. with them. Mm-hmm. Um, and if somebody has read, written something that pissed you off, you kind of feel like you know them. Yeah. You don't, but you feel like you do. Uh, and and I think there's a, a lowering of uh, inhibition there because of that sense of intimacy, because of that sense of connection. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And um, there was an interesting thing that I read that I think you said a while back where you you were talking about readers uh, who read people's who read genre work like sci-fi or fantasy and you're basically saying that there's no what, nothing's more important than the other you know what's more important what's no, the most important thing is that people enjoy what they read regardless of what the genre is that's the take-home message really and um i think there is I, i've certainly noticed in the book world more than the tv world i think but in the book world there's definitely a bit of snobbery around certain genres and you know it was i think it was mark atwood said that she didn't write sci-fi when you look at the handmaid's tale and ox and Horace and Craig, and it's hard to to not see that as sci-fi dystopia stuff, and and it's almost like is there like a is there a barrier for some people to do they look down on certain areas? You think, and is that is that changing as time goes on? There's absolute. I mean, fiction is uh, a social human in uh, endeavor, and because of that, all of the bullshit that we have out in the world is absolutely going to come in here. That's that you you can't. You can't take them away. And one of the things we do is we worry about status. Mm-hmm. We worry about whether we're more important than the next fella. Um, and yeah, no, there's absolutely people who are uh, worried about what their writing or their reading says about them as a person to people around. Them. There's, there's, I think, a whole genre of books that are there not to be read, but to prove that you went to college because mm-hmm. I'm the kind of person who reads this. Mm-hmm. Um, and there's a bunch of things that are really low status genres that are only read for pleasure because there isn't a payoff for status. There is the social uh, hierarchy that says, Oh my God, you're the, Oh, you read that book. You must be really smart. You know? Um, and, and that doesn't just, come down on science fiction or fantasy. Um, I was teaching a workshop up in Calgary in Canada years ago. And there was a woman who said, how can I make sure that my work isn't mistaken for romance? And I said, well, romance has a larger readership, more money. Um, Why are you, what are you, what are you doing here? (laughs) Why do you not want that? 
And it's because romance is a lower status genre than science fiction mm-hmm. or mystery. Um, so all of the prejudices, you know, and, and romance is a, uh, a lower status genre, mostly because um, we have just a lot of misogyny in the culture. And that is the genre that is associated with women readers and women writers. And so it can't be serious. Mm-hmm. Um, and that is our contempt for women coming through. We don't, uh, you know, we think of science fiction and we think of the the nerdy 15-year-old kid who, who you know, has the thick glasses. And, and that's not that's not at all who the readership is, but that's kind of the impression of it. Mm-hmm. And that is our contempt for that kid being expressed in the, our contempt for science fiction. Mm-hmm. Um, there's a tremendous amount of contempt that we have for one another. And the, the expression of that as contempt for what art we create, what art we enjoy uh is a measure of our failures of empathy toward each other uh and our kind of internalized fear of being the person who's on the who's getting the fuzzy end of that lollipop mm-hmm. yeah. I mean, it, 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 there, the, yeah is it something that always um it, it, there's definitely a, a i feel in in certain parts of the media, you know, in a book review column, it will always be the literary novel that sits higher than any genre novel of any type. Um, even though you can get genre novels that are, you know, brilliantly written, have great characters, really deep characters, but they're kind of just dismissed because of the story they're telling was just well, and not, not even necessarily the story they're telling. Let me, let me give you an example. Um, imagine a story about um, a, an alien race that um, comes to earth and um, uses plastic surgery to sculpt one of their kind into looking like a, a really attractive woman who then goes and uh, is a hitchhiker and grabs men to take back to a, a secret lair where they get fattened up to be a delicacy that's fed to aliens in other worlds. <laughs> that, that's science. That's like the, the most science fiction of science fiction, yeah. right? Mm-hmm. Um, that's a literary novel. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, um, and uh, but, and the movie adaption was of, of and, the skin and, was very very literary as well. Yes, so so what are we talking about here? <laughs> yeah. If that's literature, um, and Ursula Le Guin is science fiction, and uh, and uh, N.K. Jemison is genre um we're just making shit up at this point yeah, right that's 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 not a meaningful that's not a meaningful distinction anymore except that it's not a it's not actually a conversation about the books mm-hmm. it's actually a conversation about um people's self-image and their relationship to art so is it is it coming down to to people themselves who are running these 
reviews, etc., gatekeepers who are deciding what what types of work is and isn't accepted? Is it is it a personal thing as opposed to the actual product itself? Then, oh, always, it always has been. That's that's the the curating and and gatekeeping and um, all of that is all of that is ultimately an express and that 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 is an art in itself that is a, a kind of a a meta sort of art but that is about the personality and beliefs of the curator mm-hmm. i mean all of those i mean and, and I'll, i'm going to use a uh kind of a cheesy example here but you remember all of those alfred hitchcock presents uh yeah. things that we, we yeah. I, maybe you guys are you guys are younger <laughs> than i am but uh but there were there were anthologies of Alfred Hitchcock presents, and all of those were about the story of Alfred Hitchcock and what Alfred Hitchcock meant. Mm-hmm. Um, the any review site is about the story of what that reviewer means. All of Dorothy Parker's stuff, like I was saying, it's not about. You don't read Dorothy Parker to understand the books that she was reviewing better. You read it because. She, you're a fan of Dorothy Parker. Mm-hmm. Um, you don't, I, I've, I've always wanted there to be. Um, and if I ever get to the point where I'm really ready for my career to be over, I may do this. I, I, <laughs> I want the, the, the website that reviews reviewers, right? I want the one that's like that all, all literature is subject to critical interpretation mm-hmm. and examination except book reviews i think i and and they're just as much writing as anything else they're just as much an art form as anything else and understanding what makes a review good what makes a review interesting that that's actually that's a fascinating question and i would love to be able to uh you know take examples from review sites and say okay so what is this person telling us about themselves what is this person telling us about their beliefs in literature what is what is what makes this review a good review? Um, and I understand it's a little uh, ironic that I started off this conversation with the Kurt Vonnegut quote about literature disappearing up its own asshole. And now here I am <laughs> just totally advocating for uh, a colonoscopy of a, of a website. But, but, you know, I live in the tension. I don't know. <laughs> We look forward to that when it comes out. <laughs> um, but you, uh, to, to change tack, uh, you've obviously written across, you've written novels, you've written uh, screen, you've done screenwriting as well, and you've also uh, done some graphic novels as well. Um, how, how do you, do you enjoy switching between the different types of writing? Do you find it a different challenge or... I, they all frustrate me in different ways. Right. I find them all frustrating differently. Um, the The screenwriting is um, it's a completely different uh, toolbox than the one I'm used to working with, and you can kind of tell that when you read my scripts. My my scripts read like somebody who spent too much time writing prose. Um, it, I, I I have a bunch of bad habits, a bunch of habits that are really appropriate for prose that are terrible for screenwriting. Mm-hmm. Um, so I need to tack against that. For for graphic novels, I'm still trying to get my 
feet under me with feel like with graphic novels. I don't think I don't think I quite understood how to do a really good graphic novel script. But I I got some things I would like to try to to get better with that one. Um, the prose is where I feel most comfortable, but even that has days that are like that that it's not doing what I want it to do. Um, so yeah, I, I I think all of them are related but separate projects mm-hmm. and all of them have their own rewards and their own uh frustrations and the thing about the, the thing about about um making television that is actually most like writing isn't screenwriting the thing that's most like writing in television or film is film editing right yeah that mm-hmm. last pass before it goes where you kind of the last rewrite of the story before it goes out to the audience. Cause when you're, when I'm writing a story or a novel, there's like very little between me and the audience. There's uh, a copy editor, there's some formatting. And then mostly it's just me talking straight to them. Mm-hmm. When you're writing a screenplay, you are miles from yeah. the, your, the final product and from your final audience. And by, by the time it comes out, it will have been through so many different other artists who are doing their work for the you really if if a few of your lines actually make it to the final cut you've done good <laughs> <laughs> and you've you've also done franchise work uh tie-in work for things like star wars game of uh, uh, the, the game of thrones um and is it is it do you enjoy jumping into other people's worlds and playing in their sandbox or is it more fun creating your own it varies it varies a lot um the Game of Thrones one was interesting because that was actually an adaptation. I wasn't the the project for that was making the graphic novels out of the first book of Song of Ice and Fire. And the point of that one was for me to vanish. It was supposed to be mm-hmm. as much as possible George's script, George's story and, and words and then uh, Tommy's art. And if you noticed that I was there at all, it was because I failed. Mm-hmm. So that was fascinating. Having something where the point was to be invisible mm-hmm. was really interesting. Um, with the Star Wars book, um, that was that was uh, kind of a lark. That was for fun. That was a a thing where we got to take kind of the best version of Han Solo in Han Solo's arc, and uh, the the kind of free ish hand to tell uh, a story and and kind of revisit that um it's frustrating because it's very constrained Mm -hmm. um and it's not something where all of our you know we we spent a long time arguing about uh what exactly the story was that we were permitted to tell Mm -hmm. yeah um our our the pitch that we first had, we didn't, we didn't get to quite do this there. You can see some, some of the bones in it, what we finally did do, but we wanted to tell the story where uh, in the star Wars universe between new hope and empire, uh, there were rumors of a, an Imperial droid designer who was maybe thinking about switching sides and defecting. And Han Solo had to sneak in behind enemy lines to find him only to discover it was not, the designer who was gone rogue, but the droids who were then going to destroy all organic life in the galaxy. And he had to go to this ancient uh, world where the droids were uncovering an 
ancient weapon that would destroy uh, anything that wasn't a droid. Because then you could have had uh, Han Solo retiring replicants in an ancient temple, and it would have been perfect, <laughs> right? Um, and we didn't get to do that, but. <laughs> That's a great shame. That would have been excellent. Yeah, right? <laughs> um, so I, I think I'm right in saying that the final Expanse book is out next year. Is is that right? Is it? That is the plan. Yeah. Uh, Leviathan Falls, is that the title? Leviathan Falls yeah. is the last of the last novel. Yeah, but that's what I was going to ask. I mean, it, it, this is the last novel of the, of the saga. I take it you will always leave open the chance to dip your toe in that water again if you want to no oh okay (laughs) absolutely not okay no um the the last book is the last book there's there's a tenth of volume right that is the novellas and short stories Mm -hmm. collected that are in that universe and then um then that's done that's then that's over um i have I have no interest in going back to that. Ty has no interest in going back to that. Good stories end. I mm-hmm. really the the my frustration, my frustration with Star Wars, just to you know, mm-hmm. bite the hand that feeds me, um, is I have come to the understanding that it is no longer a story. It is now a subgenre. Yeah. Um, there will be no satisfying ending. Mm-hmm. to the star wars stuff ever the way that this will work and that's fine you know, you know i liked i liked x files too and uh yeah. that, did, that didn't go anywhere <laughs> yeah. um and i i i think when you give up having an ending you actually give up something kind of precious mm-hmm. um i think that the sense of a meaningful conclusion to a story is um for me anyway it's that's what makes um storytelling powerful i mean the the if you just want something that's going to go on with more incident and event and drama and the next thing and the next thing and the next thing and the next thing without it ever actually building to uh, a conclusion that gives you that sense of catharsis. You can just live. I mean, that's what we, that's what we <laughs> yeah. do. That's that's just normal. Um, and 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 you can't have a good story that doesn't end. Yeah, I think that's I, I, yeah. Uh, I was just going to say. I, I think it's yeah. uh, the, you know there are so many examples we can think of probably immediately of stories that should have ended neatly and were dragged out for whatever reason, commercial reasons, largely. In yeah, the no, case. absolutely. And, um, and there's a certain point at which the commercial considerations um, need to be turned away from. Yeah. I mean, there's a certain point at which either you are uh, committed to getting rich or uh, making good art. Now I'm in the enviable position of it's really um, w- will I get richer or make good art? And I, I'm okay. I'm good. I'm, mm-hmm. I'm, I'm, if, if I don't, if I don't 
get the next big uh, contract because it's not an expanse book. I want to be all right. Yeah. Um, and I would rather have something that is uh, artistically successful at this point. Yeah. And that said, we, we've already sold the next trilogy after the expanse. So that's, I'm also, I get to say that because I know what the next thing looks like. <laughs> it's fine. I'm, I'm going to be okay. Um, so that, that's a little disingenuous but, on my part. But even, even the, the commercial considerations can, you know, they can backfire because people don't want, you know, consciously or subconsciously, they also want an ending to the, they can say that they love that and they want it to go on forever. But, you know, there's, there's TV shows that have tried to go on longer than they should have, and the audience gives up on it anyway because it's not going anywhere. Kind of a thing. Well, everything does end. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's the, the any of these projects will eventually end. That's true, and it will either end in uh, a David Bowie's Black Star style mm-hmm. celebration and blowout that leaves everybody just floored. Or it will trickle off slowly until uh, you're, you know, you've got the band that you loved in the 80s who's at the corner (laughs) pub trying to belt out the stuff they did when they were 20. And it's just kind of sad. I I think for myself, as with everybody, perhaps Bowie. So what was the last book that you read? The last book that I read was uh, Robert Caro's The Power Broker. It's a huge brick of a book about Robert Moses and the uh, rise to power that he had in, in New York and in the planning and structure of New York hmm. from the early 1900s until the 60s. And it is um, eerie reading that in our present environment yeah. <laughs> and uh talking about the narcissism and power um awesome. it's it's an amazing book nice and uh what about the last film that you watched the last well the last thing that i watched i mean it was i, I guess it counts as a film is the uh the uh rest ring table read on, oh yeah, uh, uh-huh. yeah. On, that looks, uh, it's not in the UK yet, I don't think. I, I, but I really, really do want to watch that. It was charming. It was wonderful to go back and and to go back into that kind of uh, left wing liberal fantasy of competent government. It was great. <laughs> it was lovely to be there, even if it was just a sip. Um, I'm I haven't voted yet in the the. Uh, elections here but i'm planning to go on tuesday i'm going in person i'm putting an n95 mask on and then a cloth mask over that and you know we're we're in the process we're right now new mexico is spiking badly with coronavirus Mm -hmm. we were doing okay and we're not doing okay now and i'm going out anyway because it's just it's it's literally my duty as a citizen Mm -hmm. oh absolutely and 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 we're going out we're going to do it um i will tell you the last tv show that i finished the whole project yeah okay um and if you have not seen the good place uh don't let anybody tell you anything 
four seasons long. It's half hour shows. It is um, an undoable project. It is an impossible project that they did. They Mm -hmm. landed the ending. It is sweet. It is thoughtful. It is challenging. It is the best intro to philosophy course I have ever been in. Um, It is uh, a project that has, it's a, it's a, a network sitcom that has helped me understand the necessity of death. Yeah. That's amazing. Yeah. Yeah, And that's a show with a very good last episode that knew when to end and, and didn't overstate as well. And, and, and honest to God, I did not think they could do it. Yeah, I was going absolutely. to think, how are you going to end this? I mean, how you, how do you, okay, well, here's your premise. How do you end that? Yeah. And uh, then they showed me how you end that. I was like, oh yeah, no, that's exactly how you end that. Yeah. that and every, every season you would, you would, just as it was starting to get, you know, the, they would kind of stretch out and then would, the season would flip everything on its head. It would be a whole new feel to it. And they kept doing oh. that, reinventing it every time. It was very smart. No, the, the second season in particular, I mean, we got to the end of the first season and the thing happens and, and I think, okay, well, I know what the next season is going to be. And everything that I, I I knew that they were going to do in the next season. They did in the first two episodes. I thought, okay, I don't know where we're going now. <laughs> All right, now we're doing a thing. All right, let's let's see what that is. And yeah, they had something. Big. They 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 went from strength to strength to strength, and it was uh, a genuinely um, beautiful experience the whole way through. It was just I love that one. I just I, I can't say can't say enough about that show. Nice. Right. No, I definitely, definitely agree with that. And uh, as Marco says, the very last thing we do is a quick fire, either or. There's no right answers apart from one. So the first one is uh, sci-fi or fantasy. Uh, fantasy. Um, Star Wars or Star Trek. Ah. <laughs> uh, <laughs> uh, uh, Wrath of Khan, and I'm quitting. <laughs> Good answer. I like that. That's fine. Uh, TV or cinema? TV. A fancy restaurant or a takeaway? In normal times. Takeaway. Okay. Takeaway. <laughs> and the uh, last one real book or ebook? <sighs> real book, but, but only by a nose. Okay. Uh, yeah, that's, you must be pleased. Tarek yeah, is yeah, a I'm, big I'm, ebook advocate. So, uh, that's, that's, well, here's that's, the thing. That's, here's that's the thing about fine. here's the thing. Here's the thing about ebooks. Um, there, I can take them anywhere. I've got them all the time. When I'm reading my wife to sleep, the lights can be off. It's got its own light on it. It's great that way. Um, but I have a book that was published in uh, nineteen ten. It doesn't need a system update. Yeah. <laughs> oh, that was a really, really fun chat. Real interesting. Yeah, no, it was. I really enjoyed speaking to Daniel. Yeah, I, I really enjoyed the stuff he was saying about, you know, the attitude that people have towards genre fiction, like sci-fi and fantasy, and the comparison he made about Under the Skin yeah. being... I mean, at heart, it's a sci-fi novel, but it's it's very much seems. Like I mean, it, it's a nonsense. And some of the names he mentioned there, like Ursula K. Le Guin and N.K. Jemison, and you know, <laughs> these are amazing writers, writers at the top of the 
top of the game in any field, and yet because they write a specific type of story, you're meant to look down on them in some way. It's a, you yeah. know, it's a, it's a, a nonsense. And and the, and the reluctance that certain authors have to label themselves, yeah, exactly, sci-fi yeah. or fantasy because they don't want the I the baggage know, that comes with it. Or baggage, yeah, it's, I mean, I think there's no doubt that there is a snobbery, as we said, a certain. And I'm not even sure it's the readership. It's it's almost like it's almost yeah. within writing itself or within publishing. Yeah. There's because, a kind of because you look at sci-fi novels or Thai novels or any kind of novel that's not a big mainstream genre, mm-hmm. and there are tons of readers there. You know, mm-hmm. the readers the readers are there. You're right. It's 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 almost uh, it's the people, it's the reviewers or the media or some kind of overseeing. Yeah. You know, writing body that says this stuff isn't actually. It's not as or I'm not going to treat this in the same way that I would treat something from Hilary Mantel. You know, which is you know, Hilary Mantel is a great writer. Absolutely treat her great, but also treat a sci-fi writer if they've written a great sci-fi book and don't. The genre shouldn't matter in any way whatsoever. No, and then there's there is. People who seem to break through that, like mm-hmm. you know Arthur C. Clarke, Ted mm-hmm. Pratchett. There's certain people who who break through a genre and are famous and are loved, and it's, yeah. they're and they're cool. They're, it's, that's great. And then there's many, many more who who don't. And I don't really understand what I, the difference is between. Them. And it's it's actually the same. Although I think it is getting better. But you know, just from the point of view of you know, a lot of our listeners are people that write and want to be published and. If you're looking for an agent, certainly in the UK, there are quite there's quite a lot that sort of always have this caveat of no SFF, mm-hmm. no sci-fi and fantasy. You know, they they just don't want yeah. to even look at it, even though it could be the best piece of writing that there's ever been. If it's yeah. in that category, they just won't look at it. Which you know, it seems very close-minded, really. It does, and especially when you get stuff like. We've chatted to, um, you have to remind me of the band's name, who wrote the, I've actually forgotten his book, that was turned into a TV show on Netflix, Richard Morgan. Okay. I don't know, Mark, I'll get it myself, it's fine. It's <laughs> noted it. Richard Morgan, he is very much a sci-fi fantasy author, but his sci-fi stuff skews into that kind of crimey noir mm-hmm. stuff. And and is that something that maybe some genre authors are having to do in order to sell no, but like if, if you break it down you know every sci-fi story is also something else you know a fantasy book is uh, you know arg- you could argue that Lord of the Rings or certainly some of the Lord of the Rings books are war stories you know yeah, um, yeah. but but they get categorised by a certain you know, if you, if you put them in the fantasy yeah. or sci-fi category, then that, that brings them down and people don't want to look at them. But there's plenty of sci-fi books that are crime books. There's plenty of um, fantasy books that are thrillers. There's, you know, a thing can be more than one yes. type of story. It's almost it's like it's the setting, to, you know? Yeah. You, you say fantasy and people imagine Lord of the Rings. You say sci-fi folk imagine Star Wars. Uh-huh. You know, it's, it's that kind of like reductive... Mm-hmm. Uh, view, which I think is really ultimately really hurtful for genre yeah. writers, and needlessly so. Um, but anyway, we've gone way off track there. But um, anyway, yeah. yeah. But <laughs> I, 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 I mean, I really enjoyed speaking to Daniel. So um, 
really thank you very much for coming on the podcast, Daniel. And we are all looking forward to Leviathan Falls, the final book, the final, final book, book. as he said. I was a bit surprised about that, but I I agree with what he says about stories ending. You know, having a proper ending is is so important. Yeah. And uh, and I suppose they still work on the Expanse TV show, so Mm -hmm. they're still... Even once the book series ends, just still expands adventures in some form to come. In the future. And it sounds like they've got plans for a brand new thing afterwards as well, which right, I'm sure will be great. Yeah. yeah. Uh-huh. So, um, as Tarek said at the start, this is the last episode in our current run, but we will be back in about four to six weeks, probably. Um, certainly pre-Christmas with some more episodes, some more great guests who we've already recorded. A very exciting season opener. Yes, we do. A very, very exciting In the guest. can. Exactly. In the can, and as they say. Lingo, that's lingo for it's been recorded. Oh, thanks, Terry. Oh, I, I didn't understand that. <laughs> but if you did enjoy the podcast and us rambling on at the end hasn't put you off, um, <laughs> if you... Yeah, exactly. If you we're able to give us a rating on Apple Podcasts or whatever podcast app you use, that would be great because it helps us climb the charts, which helps us to continue to get these great guests on the podcast. And of course, if anybody wants to get in touch, they can do so by sending us an email to podcast at rightgear.co.uk or a tweet to at right underscore gear. And, you know, people might be asking, why is it right gear Twitter account when you're called the page one podcast? That's a very good point. That is, of course... Right Gear is the parent company. <laughs> yes, in our tools vast empire. In our vast empire. Tools to help you tell your story is the tagline. <laughs> uh, and uh, Page One Notebook that we've mentioned a few times is, of course, one option. And the Page One Podcast is a second. Yeah, so please, if you are a writer, do check out our notebooks. Um, make a perfect Christmas present if wow. you know a writer as well. Thing, but that's a very good point, Marco. And we will be back in just a few short weeks with more great episodes. But in the meantime... Stay safe, stay at home if you're in a lockdown area and uh, listen to our back catalogue. That'll pass the time. (laughs) (laughs) See you guys in a few weeks.